Thank you very much. It is beyond an honor to be here. Never in my wildest dreams that I think I would cross over any, um, any doorways at Oxford. So it really is wonderful to be here. So thank you guys for having me. Um, thanks for that beautiful introduction. I, I, I said that she's hired now as my press agent, should I ever be in a position to need one. But that was really great. So today I'm going to talk about heritage speaker bilingualism. Just by a show of hands before we get started, how many people know what a heritage speaker is? Raise your hands high. I want everybody to see. By the way, I, I'm American. I'm not going to apologize for it. So it's going to be participatory, and I'm probably going to speak fast. But you guys get enough American television, I think, to deal with my accent. Um, but in any case, we all know what heritage speakers are, most of us. At least there was a good small majority of people who knew what heritage speakers are. Remember you said that in a couple minutes, that you absolutely know what a heritage speaker is. We will soon see. So let me tell you what we're going to do today. This will be our roadmap. First, we'll start uh, with some definitions and also some type of participatory game we're going to play about heritage speakers. And I'm going to try to convince you, if not convince you, explain to you why we study them from different aspects. Um, I'm going to summarize for you what is a relatively large body of research now, specifically looking at heritage speakers um, over the past, let's say, 15 years or so. And I'm going to try to summarize for you um, without detail, but to try to give you the trends of what we know, what these studies tell us. Um, they're, most, they're often different from monolingual comparisons. And I'm going to ask with you and try to develop for you um, an explanation uh, beyond description of why this might be. Um, I'm going to try to argue for something specific for you as we move forward, and I'll pose it to you as a question now. Is there a link between compounded L1 attrition, so that's first language attrition, and attrition being the erosion of previously acquired knowledge? Um, is this explanatory for heritage speaker outcomes, and that is difference? I'll explain to you what I mean by compounded as we move forward, okay? And then what are the implications that we can draw? And because this is a school of education, my last slide, although I know nothing about education, and hopefully you won't devour me, um, will be to try to make some links uh, for education in terms of heritage speakers specifically. Okay, well, How can this inform that? So by way of introduction, I want to talk to you a little bit about bi and multilingualism. And this gives you a snapshot of the European Union and the US. So first, how many of you would be surprised, probably not because you're in this room, if I told you that the majority of the world's speakers are actually not monolingual, right? So about 60 plus percent, 66 percent by, uh, by some estimates are naturally mo uh, not monolingual, and that is bi or multilingual, okay? And I'm actually going to use multilingualism probably today to include bilinguals, multi in the sense of its actual root meaning more than one, okay? So bilinguals in a sense are multilingual. Okay, so in the European Union, 56% of people are reported to be at least bilingual, if not multilingual, okay, leaving 44% uh, or a clear minority of people who are monolingual, okay? And monolingual, it's, it's difficult to tell what that means, too, because if you're Italian, you might report yourself as monolingual even if you speak a dialect because of your relative assumption of what counts as a language, too. So it might be that the number's even higher. Well, let's look at some of the countries here. So we can see that Luxembourg, for example, is, is purported to be 99% bi or multilingual. And this goes down. But even you know a country like Poland is, in its majority, uh, bi or multilingual. Um, I'm going to show you what England looks like in a couple slides, actually. It doesn't look as beautiful as this. but. Uh, because a lot of the research on heritage speakers comes from the US, I'm going to just point out to you as well that uh, this is the 2007 numbers. About 20 million speakers are bilingual. And this is not including people like me who learned second and third languages in the context of school. But this is naturalistic bilingualism. And the numbers are actually higher than this. Um, about 20% will we'll go here now. Just to give you a picture of the US, there are states. And the darker the color, the more the higher the concentration of bi and multilingualism is. So if not surprising, states that have very big cities that you're undoubtedly familiar with, they tend to have more bi and multilingualism because uh, bilingualism tends to proliferate in urban areas, right? So in Miami, in various places of Texas, so on and so forth. Not surprisingly, also, if you know the geography of my country, Mexico is right here. And so we can see even in states like New Mexico, we're talking about 30% or higher. Some of these states actually have 50% or higher 
by our multilingualism, okay? So according to, this is now the 2007 census, again, the numbers are higher, 19.7% of the US population is naturalistically bilingual. And to give you the, what that is in numbers, the country's population is quite large. We're talking over 65 million speakers, of which almost all, not all, but 90% or so are, at least in this reporting, are Spanish speakers, okay? So actually the US is the second largest in number Spanish-speaking country in the world, okay? And a lot of this, I also want to say that I'm gonna talk about Spanish and other heritage languages, but heritage language as a discipline is not about Spanish in a prima facie example of the United States. It is about, we'll see the definition, and it can be applied to many, many languages in the US and then of course, um, in, the, in England and, and anywhere. Um, but just to kind of show you about the growing trends of numbers, so here we are in 2010, 50.5 million speakers. This is Spanish speakers. The projection is by 2050 that this number will be 132 million or in excess of that. It is the only growing population in the context of the United States except for the Asian population, which is, which is growing very slightly in small numbers. So the majority, quote unquote, because this is the term the government uses, white non-Hispanic population at 64% majority in the 2010 census is expected to decline as the numbers almost equivalent to its decline will be a rise in the Hispanic population. So there's lots of heritage speakers in the US and of a particular group, which makes it an interesting language and context to study. There are hundreds of heritage languages, however, in the context of the US. Okay. Now just to show you a little bit about England and the, the bilingual, multilingual context. So remember we saw that 56% of Europe is bilingual. Well, about 7% of the UK is reported to be bilingual. Um, and this is the numbers just for England here. Uh, approaching 50 million uh, English dominant speakers, which is about nine, almost 93, 92 and a half percent of the country. But you have very large populations of other languages. Um, and, and in our area, right, in the greater London areas where a good majority of these Polish, Punjabi, Urdu, Bengali, and so on and so forth speakers live. These are all heritage languages in the context of England. And this list goes on and on and on with smaller numbers of speakers. So that's our context. So who are heritage speakers? Remember we all said, raise your hands again, just very proudly. Who knows what a heritage speaker is? You can already tell what I'm about to do to you in two seconds. Okay, so who are heritage speakers? Undoubtedly these people whose hands are painted are probably heritage speakers. Okay, so we're gonna play a game now and you're gonna participate. Uh, I expect being at Oxford that you all have fantastic memories, but if you don't and you can just take out a little piece of paper and a pen so you can keep track of your numbers. I'm gonna read for you 12 scenarios, and if you feel that this is an example of a heritage speaker, you have one point for each of these speakers, okay? If you don't, you don't assign a point. So you can have a total of 12 to zero if you feel that none of these scenarios are actually heritage speakers. We all get how the game goes, yeah? Okay, so Pedro is 25. He was born in Paraguay. At the age of six, he moved to Texas, where he has lived ever since. He speaks Spanish and English with seemingly similar ease and fluency. Is Pedro a heritage speaker? If so, you have a score of one, right? Joao is 38. He was born in Brazil and moved to the US when he was 15. Portuguese is his native language. And although he has a slight accent in English, he claims that he could express himself better at this point in English. Is Joao a heritage speaker? Zhongwei is 24. She was born in Los Angeles. Soon after her parents emigrated from China, she grew up speaking Mandarin only until she went to school where English was introduced and Mandarin input sharply decreased. Is Zhengwei a heritage speaker? Bjorn is 17. He was born in New Jersey. His mother's from Sweden, but his father's from Newark. That's in New Jersey. His mother has spoken to him in Swedish since he was born and his father English. Today, Bjorn has great passive knowledge of Swedish, understanding, he thinks anyway, everything but is belabored to even have a conversation. But he can speak, okay? Is Bjorn a heritage speaker? Valentina's grandparents are from Italy. Although her parents speak Italian, they elected not to speak Italian in her household, probably because someone told them it would confuse Valentina. Valentina was minimally exposed to Italian, but she knows many expressions and culturally significant words like manja and all of these wonderful things. 
Despite not speaking the language, Valentina considers herself Italian and is quite proud. This might be a concept that seems foreign to people in Europe, but if you ask a typical person in the U.S. what they are, they will tell you they're Polish, German, French, and Swedish. And what they mean by that is their great-great-grandmother maybe came from Sweden, so on and so forth. But the cultural identity is actually there, and Valentina will probably be very upset with you if you try to explain to her that she's not really Italian. She is in her image anyway, okay? Is she a heritage speaker? Tihana, now 32, was born in Croatia and moved to Italy when she was five. At the age of 18, she moved back to Croatia, where she has lived ever since. Is she a heritage speaker? Boris, who's 18's grandparents, were from Russia. Both sets of his grandparents and his parents were raised in a strong Russian minority community in New York City, where Russian is spoken. Boris's parents only speak to him in English, but he was around Russian passively all his life. He's now taking Russian in college. And let's assume, actually, he doesn't speak Russian, but he's taking Russian. He was exposed to it. Is Boris a heritage speaker? Sue Young's 25. She was born in Korea, where she lived through the age of eight. She was adopted by Americans at the age of eight and moved to the U.S., never having direct contact with Korean again. She's now belabored to even understand much of anything in Korean. Is she a heritage speaker? Now, at the age of eight, she spoke Korean, and she didn't speak any other language, and now she doesn't even understand it. This is a real scenario. If you know the Pallier studies and other studies done mostly in France, but also in the US, this happens, okay? Is she a heritage speaker? Lisa's 13 and from New York City. Both her parents are American, but she was brought up in Hispanic neighborhood. The church her family goes to is a Hispanic church, and Lisa speaks Spanish very well having been exposed to it amply in her environment all her life. She's 13, and if you know anything about the US, you know she has not had a foreign language yet because we don't have a foreign language until we're 14. So she is very good at speaking Spanish. This is all completely through naturalistic exposure. Is she a heritage speaker? Jennifer's 33. She was born at Vietnam, but left with her family for California when she was six. Her parents were told to try to limit Vietnamese input as it would, quote, confuse her and slow the process of learning English down. Today, Jennifer finds it very difficult to speak in Vietnamese and has some comprehension problems, but she understands it rather well. Is Jennifer a heritage speaker? Two more, so your grand total can be a maximum of 10 now. Jacob is 16. Jacob's Jason, by the way. He's Jewish and lives in Florida. From 7 to 13, he went to a special school to learn Hebrew and had a bar mitzvah at the age of 13. He's now totally fluent in English and Hebrew, although he is the only one in his family who has any knowledge of Hebrew. This is not an uncommon scenario. This was my life until I was 13, and I do speak Hebrew. Zoli Swaz from South Africa. Despite her cultural Zulu background and strong cultural pride, she's never been exposed to Swahili as a child and is now at the age of 22, taking it in a special program offered by her central government. Is Zoli Swaz a heritage speaker? Okay, so before we move forward, you can have a maximum score of 12. How many of you have a score of 12? Raise your hand. No one. I do, but you do. it depends on whether you adopt a proficiency-based explanation or not. We're going to go through the variables. OK, <laughs> she's smart. All right. So we have one 12, two 12s, two 12s, 11s, 10, a 10, two 10s, 9, a 9, 8, 8, two 8s, 7, you have to answer, by the way. Seven, okay, a couple sevens. Another seven. Six, a lot of sixes. Five, four. Anything lower than six? Okay, uh, lower than six, what's your number? Two. Two, okay, so wonderful. We have a range of two to 12. That's fantastic, because remember, in this little cohort, everybody knew what a heritage speaker was, but we had vastly different numbers. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Okay. So what qualifies you as a heritage speaker? Before I move on, I want to say to you, too, that there's a lot, as in every field, as in every subdiscipline, there are lots of disagreements among researchers about lots of scenarios, about what we see, how to interpret the data. But also, apparently, although this isn't so obvious, about inclusion. And actually, maybe one of the reasons of the high levels of differences in opinion has at least something to do with the fact that we're not talking about the same people, even though we think we are, because we use the same term, 
heritage speaker. Clearly, my friends in the audience who gave a six and those who gave a 10 cannot be speaking always about the same individuals, and maybe that's part of the issue. So this is a good exercise, um, especially for those of you who might be students here, to realize that sometimes you need to really, well, not sometimes. You always need to define the parameters of what you're talking about, but also strive to understand what that other person that you're reading and you, you disagree with is saying. But so if you, were, if, you, if you were paying attention, so this was either explicit or implicit learning that I was doing, I was taking some variables and I was co-varying them, but in real life scenarios. So let's look at some of them. And this gave rise to the difference between 12 and 6 in your inclusion. Is the environmental situation what's the primary deterministic factor for you? If so, then you were going to disclude some people and include other people. Okay, um, Cultural ties. So for example, Valentina <laughs> might, have included, might have been included for you, even though she speaks no Italian whatsoever. If you remember, she's the one who doesn't speak Italian, but is Italian. You might have included her, but you might have discluded Lisa, because she, after all, doesn't have a cultural tie to Spanish. She just happens to live in a community where she learned it naturalistically. However, interestingly, she, Lisa, is a speaker, heritage language speaker, and Valentina is not a speaker because she doesn't speak. But if you use cultural ties, that might have made the difference for you. Time or age of acquisition. Did Joao not count for you? Because he was 15 when he moved to the US. So is he just an L2 learner of English who has had some attrition and, and feels more dominant in English, but not a heritage speaker because he was 15? Perhaps that was for you. Minimal degree of linguistic competence. So if people were passive bilinguals, no, they're, they're out. They're not speakers then in a sense, perhaps. Strong family ties. And there's other variables that we can continue to talk about. Were any of these factors more important than others? Well, the answer to that is always yes. Okay? But does this depend on the questions you seek to ask? And the answer to that is almost always yes, too. Okay? So um, I haven't left you yet with a definition that I'll be using. I'm about to go to it. But let me tell you that all 12 of these scenarios are taken from published literature claiming that these, that these people are to be considered. And for their questions, I think very well, all 12 of these, but certainly other questions would disclude and include other sets of people. Okay? All of these scenarios do come from reported literature on heritage speakers. But here's the definition we're going to work with, because it's mine, and I like it. Um, also because for the type of work that I do, which I'll start to explain to you, this is, it's important to have this, I think. So a language qualifies as a heritage language if it is a language spoken at home or otherwise readily available to young children. So I would include Lisa for my purposes. And crucially, this language is not a dominant language of the larger national society. So it's all, by the way, all heritage speakers are bilingual. Not all bilinguals are heritage speakers. And we'll come back to that as well, OK? The heritage language is acquired on the basis of an interaction with naturalistic input and whatever. I, I'm a generative linguist, and I'm not. I, I make no apologies about that, but it doesn't have to be my version of what's internal. Whatever gives rise to an interaction between input, cognition, and an ultimate system, that's what we're talking about in a neutral sense. Whatever these are, in any instance of child language acquisition, this is what gives rise to heritage knowledge. Differently from monolingual acquisition, there is the possibility that quantitative and qualitative differences in heritage language input, which I will talk about for the rest of the talk, influence of the societal majority language, and differences in literacy and formal education can result in what on the surface seems to be arrested development of the heritage language or attrition in adult bilingual knowledge. So this is what we're going to use as a definition moving forward. So what do the studies tell us in, uh, when you bring them together? By the way, let me highlight for you that there's some wonderful work that really summarizes stuff, especially an article by Benjamin Montrell and Polinsky, which is new. It just came out. It's a, it's a huge article. It's like 70 pages of a journal, um, and it comes with a lot of commentaries. I think it's in Linguistic Review, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it really summarizes at least the formal and beyond formal linguistic work of the past 20 years. So it's a good, it's a good uh, read. But here's, in summary, what the whole of the literature tells us. Heritage language grammatical competence, that is their knowledge of the grammatical system, and performance, their use of language, differ from monolingual norms. And that's norming them appropriately, socioeconomic status, so on and so forth, to various degrees 
and in various domains. This means that we actually use words like low proficiency heritage speaker, which of course we're using borrowed from second language acquisition. It might not seem to make so much sense because they are native speakers. I will fight with you later if you don't think so. They are not necessarily dominant speakers, but they are native speakers. Uh, to various degrees, so beginning, intermediate, advanced, seemingly, quote, near native, because that's the term, they're all native, um, but really being convergent with monolinguals, and in various domains of grammar. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Heritage speakers often show, quote, incomplete, which is a word I don't like very much, and I'll explain as I move forward. Let's be more neutral and say partial knowledge as opposed to an utter lack of knowledge. This is important because this differentiates them from other types of learners who are also bilingual, such as second language learners. It is not the case that they don't know anything about a given property of language. Let me be specific. Let's say we're talking about subjunctive mood, for example. Okay? So it might be that a heritage speaker of Spanish, they don't use the subjunctive mood in all the same context that a native speaker does, or a monolingual native speaker, but we can't say they don't know the subjunctive. They use it very well. They use the morphology very well. When it's really not a choice, and that is the grammar only has one option, and it's the subjunctive, they're fantastic at it. But when the grammar allows for subtle differences in meaning between an option of using the indicative and the subjunctive, here's where we see differences in them. So yes, they are different, but they have ample evidence to show us that they do know the subjunctive. And this is different through development of L2. Actually, sophisticated, high-level L2 speakers often show this knowledge as well, but remember, they have this as a byproduct of natural acquisition. So they show differences, but it doesn't show incomplete or incomplete knowledge of a given domain. Heritage language competence can differ significantly from one another, whereby some are much more, quote, proficient holistically and in various domains as others. This happens even in the context of a family, which almost looks like it's a natural laboratory, right? They're getting the same types of input. And it doesn't always happen in the logical way. So what you would logically think is that the older child is going to be better than the younger child, right? They lived more in a bubble where the majority language is less introduced. That would be fantastic if that's what always happened, but it's not always the case. Sometimes the younger children in the same family have more robust knowledge than the older children. We should not and do not, and actually Vicky works on this, so we used to ignore this, but we shouldn't and we don't anymore. We don't take for granted that differences in heritage speakers are unidirectional, whereby only surfacing in the grammatical knowledge of the minority language. That is to say, their English is often different as well, although much more subtly, and it can go by unless you actually look at it. And when you look at it, you see that sometimes, not always, it is different as well. So how does this happen? This is naturalistic language acquisition. This is not the byproduct of having access, per se, to different qualities of purposeful instruction and so on. This is the byproduct of naturalistic language. How are they different from other cases of naturalistic language, and that is monolinguals? Well, first, they're bilingual, okay, and we'll continue to talk about that. But in the literature prior to, I'd say, seven or eight years ago, the two only discussed, or in its majority, uh, possible explanations were attrition and incomplete acquisition, which I'll call arrested development. Okay, so attrition is the erosion of previously acquired knowledge. So the idea is the heritage speaker acquires Spanish, let's say, but then they switch in terms of their dominance, and this has the byproduct of loss, actual erosion on what was previously acquired. Now we test heritage speakers as adults, so you can't see this, it's an assumption, okay? Or it's incomplete acquisition, and that is arrested development. So it's just like it sounds. Arrested development, you're developing fine, you're six, all of a sudden you go to school and you don't hear Spanish as much, and the trajectory stunts, it stops, okay? There's another way of looking at it, that it doesn't just stop, but it ricochets into a different path, and so that it continues its development, but it winds up being different. Now, both of these are great. Uh, both of these are very explanatory, by the way. I have no problem with either of them. That's for the record. I don't have a problem with either of them. I don't think they explain everything, okay? Um, and we're going to explore this a little more. So what's the problem with these two? And the problem is not the suggestion or their value, their ecological validity, or their, in any sense, right? The problem is, is that you can't really differentiate between them when you're looking at adult grammars because 
you're working backwards from an end state grammar. Okay? So without longitudinal data, we all know this and we all admit this, this is not controversial, you can't really dissect between the two of them. There are interesting ways, and I don't have time, but there is research in the past five or six years that tries to do this well, but it's difficult to do. My point here is that both attrition and incomplete acquisition make explicit and implicit assumptions about the type of input to which heritage speakers are exposed. Properties can only be attrited, that is, acquired and lost, or not completely acquired if they were there to be acquired in the first place. Okay? And that is the point that I try to stress in the, in the research that I do. There is an assumption that should not be, um, especially because we know attrition happens. And if attrition happens, then their children are listening to attrited input. Is all that they're not getting really there for them to get? That's the question. Okay? Because if not, then heritage speakers, unlike monolinguals, whose input clearly have these properties, would have no recourse to acquire some of these properties that they don't get the sufficient input for. Okay, so we can turn this into questions if we take that seriously. And we can say, is some of the incompleteness of heritage speakers due to differences in dialect, differences, dialect leveling, previous L1 attrition, and the type of input they receive? We could ask that question and try to pursue it. If so, how can this be differentiated between, as, uh, between incomplete acquisition and attrition? Shall all cases of heritage speaker divergence be subsumed under the label incomplete acquisition? I will very passionately, as we continue, argue that no. Okay, so in earlier work, um, I had suggested, and then with some colleagues, we suggested what's called missing input convergence competence difference, MICD, not a very sexy or wonderful name, but it's what we offered. Um, and this would be the outcome of child heritage bilingual acquisition that is comparatively different from normal monolingual acquisition when the input does not provide the necessary primary linguistic data. That just means the necessary triggers for full convergence of said property. Okay? I want to be very clear that we do not reject, I do not reject the notion of, actually I do reject the name in complete acquisition, but the idea of arrested development co clearly probably coexists, and also attrition. But the idea is that they won't explain everything, so we'll push this to see how far we can get. Now if MICD is actually on the right track for some properties, we'll make predictions about two particular cases in which language should be different, and the first is, properties that are subject to diachronic change, that's change in the language over time, that is retained in the standard dialect and imparted, not because it's taught, but because this is the register with which we go to school for eight hours a day. Let me give you an example from English. How many of you really think that you do pied piping? And what that is is that you take a preposition and it's noun, and you really move it to the beginning. For example, with whom did you go to the movies? If you really, maybe we're at Oxford, maybe you do talk like, I don't, I don't know. But I do know that in the context of America, if you talk like that, I definitively don't want to be your friend, and you wouldn't be in my circle anyway. Nobody really speaks like this, okay? Who'd you go to the movies with? This is called preposition stranding. So the question is, does English really have pied piping, that is moving that entire element, the with whom construction, or is it a remnant of conservative, prescriptive grammar that then is imparted through education, through literature, through reading, not in a forceful sense, but in a sense that you become available to it. In other words, is with whom really part of a register and as a competent, educated speaker of your native language, mine being English and many of yours, you have knowledge of this through knowledge of one of the grammar registers. If that's true, heritage speakers shouldn't get this because what they don't have is formal education or exposure to the standard variety of the grammar. So if we could look at these, these are diachronic proposals from from sociolinguistic and from diachronic formal linguists who say these properties don't really exist anymore, but they do in the conservative dialect of education, then people who are educated should have them and people who don't receive that would have at best 
random knowledge or different knowledge of, of these properties. I'm going to show you some evidence of this in Portuguese in a second, but that was an example from English. And then the second one would be properties that might have suffered L1 attrition in the grammar of immigrant parents of heritage speakers. And this is something I feel that, and I've done a bunch of work on. And that is the following. If attrition happens, and it does, okay, so that's uncontroversial. If attrition happens and heritage speakers are by definition second and third generation speakers of a language, in a, not in the majority environment, then the input they receive is the byproduct of the attrition processes that have happened in their parents. Yet, traditionally, up until about five years ago, we take heritage speakers and we compare them to age and socioeconomic matched people in the home country. They don't have access to that input. So how are we surprised that they're different, okay? So maybe what we should do is look at actual, the attrited input that they hear. And we will do that now. Okay, so I'm gonna go through this quickly. And by the way, if you're not a linguist, you can ignore a lot of the things that are about to flash in front of you. If you don't know what A-bar movement and stuff is, it doesn't matter, okay? I'm gonna walk you through it very quickly, but you're gonna see some scary stuff, okay? Okay, so I'm going to talk about inflected infinitives, and everybody, I think, knows what an infinitive is. This is the, the, the unconjugated form of the verb. It doesn't show any specification for tense, aspect, mood, or any person number in most languages, okay? So in English, to go, to find, to believe, and so on and so forth, that bare form, okay? Now, in Portuguese, they have a morphological infinitive. So this uninflected infinitive, there's three types. There's those that end in AR, IR, and ER, if you know Romance languages, or Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. Um, and this maps to the to go, to see, to whatever paradigm. It is parasitic in its interpretation, right? To go means nothing. I want to go, now to go refers to I because it's parasitic on the other verb, okay? Um, and it's a verb, it expresses the action and so on, but it doesn't tell you person, number, or even tense and mood specification. I wanted to go, to go doesn't change even though wanted is in the past, so it gets its tense also from the verb that it comes along with, okay? Now, Portuguese is a very interesting language, and it's actually interesting even in its Romance cohort because it has inflected infinitives. What does that mean? It does, as an infinitive has to, not show tense, aspect, and mood. It does, however, agree with the person individually. So, there is an infinitive for I, for you, for she, so on and so forth. And, there, and it's not you get to choose if you want to use the uninflected infinitive or the inflected infinitive. They have a different distribution. But it is an infinitive. It is not marked for tense, aspect, and mood. And then, of course, it has a fully inflectional paradigm, a present tense, many present tenses, past, futures, so on and so forth. Okay, And there is a three-way distinction between them. Uninflected infinitives, I won't even bore you with this, they work like English, okay? And here's some linguistic facts of them. They're subject to obligatory control. No one cares. It works like English, okay? Inflected infinitives don't work like English because we don't have them, okay? Um, they have no tense and mood specification, but they do have person and number, okay? So they're subject to properties of non-obligatory control. Again, we don't care about this. These are semantic interpretations. But importantly, they cannot be used where finite verbs are used. You can't use it in a simple sentence. It has to be in an embedded clause because it's still going to need to get its tense anchoring from another verb, OK? So you can't just say I to go, for example, even though it specifies the person morphology. It can't be used after the word that because that in English and whatever its equivalent is in other languages introduces finiteness and it's not finite, so on and so forth, OK? You don't care about any of this. It's all linguistic jargon. But the point is, if you match the greens and the reds, you'll th see that there's some crossover where you can use finite and, uh, or inflected infinitive, but not always. There is a three-way distinction with these properties for native Portuguese speakers. Yeah. So what's the difference between uh, infinitive, Well, in an embedded clause, you can use an inflected infinitive or you can use a finite form as long as in that embedded clause there's no that. Um, and if this, with all these certain verbs, it's actually quite complex. But I'll answer that after, actually, because I don't want to get too into details because we'll, we'll miss the forest for the trees a little bit, actually, OK? Just believe me, there's a three-way distinction. And there's a, a Portuguese has an inflected infinitive. OK, that's the claim. Well, it's not the claim. Portuguese has an inflected infinitive. 
Okay, so why are we studying them? And, and I'm actually going to take you through two sets of studies. The first with the first, um, the first will correspond to the first assertion of uh, the hypothesis, the second, the second. So now we're dealing with something that has changed in diachrony, okay, um, in Portuguese. So now here's the claim. This is why we looked at this. Pires, Lightfoot, and many sociolinguists from the from the 70s, so we have a nice use of sociolinguistics even in formal linguistic research. They've claimed that actually Brazilian Portuguese, that's what BP stands for, they don't really have inflected infinitives. It's like with whom in English, okay? They don't really have it, but you ask any of the 130 of 180 million people who are formally educated, of course they do, just like if you give me a test with with whom, I will score perfectly on it, okay? Um, if this is true, it makes predictions for acquisition of many situations, but it makes crucially the prediction that heritage speakers who are not, who don't, who have no formal education and are not exposed to anything but the colloquial dialects, none of which are, are, are uh, claimed to have inflected infinitives, that they would acquire this property. Does that make sense? Much like a heritage speaker of English in Israel would, I would assume, would not be so good with with whom. It's the same type of scenario. Okay? So if exposure to education in the standard dialect is deterministic to get inflected infinitives, which all educated Brazilians have, then studying heritage speaker knowledge should provide an example, an empirical test case for this proposal, and can demonstrate nicely how input differences delimit what you might otherwise call, if you didn't consider this, incomplete acquisition. So let's see if this is true. Okay, so this is a t uh, study that appeared in the uh, Journal of International, International Journal of Bilingualism in 2007. Here are the details. Levin is very small. Go find heritage speaker. It's very difficult to find heritage speakers. We used proper statistics. Okay, um, eight of eleven of them were born in Brazil, but crucially, they all moved before the age of four, so on and so forth. Okay, both. Parents were Brazilian, and BP was the preferred language of familial communication. Okay, so now let's look at what we looked at. We looked at inflected infinitives of complements of factive, uh, factric, fa factive clauses, so embedded clauses. They're grammatical. The second uh, is with declarative matrix predicates, that is a declarative verb selecting it. It's grammatical. An infinitive as an embedded interrogative or a relative clause, this is ungrammatical. The uninflected infinitive works well, as in English, as in every language, actually. Inflected infinitives as a main verb, so like I, I to go to the party, that's out. Um, inflected infinitives after the that, okay? That introduces finiteness, so it's ungrammatical. Okay, so we have three grammatical, three ungrammatical, and what's gonna be really crucial is this condition here, because this is the uninflected infinitive, which works the same in, in English and Portuguese, okay? Okay, so here are the same six categories. What's important here, ignore the yellow. The yellow is a previous study, it's L2 learners. So actually, if you just wanna look at the yellow, you can get it in L2 acquisition, no problem, okay? These, uh, the black are the heritage speakers, the red are the monolinguals, okay? In all the categories, they are highly, significantly different than the, um, the monolinguals, except for the uninflected infinitive, which works exactly the same in Portuguese and English. They do not have inflected infinitives at all. And actually, and I don't have time to go into this, but what they show us by their responses, because they judge and then they correct, is that they take the morphology as if it's finite. They allow it after K, they allow it in every place that a finite would go. Okay, so they don't have it, right? But now we're back to our three choices. Is it attrition? It's perfectly possible they acquired this and lost it. Is it incomplete acquisition? It's possible that they never acquired it, but it was surrounding them to be acquired. Is it possible that it is, wasn't in the input? Now I'm making an assumption based on what diachronic linguistics and sociolinguistics says, and it seems to match that. But we don't really know, okay? So we did it with European Portuguese, okay. So now let me tell you, uh, unlike Brazilian Portuguese, European Portuguese, every dialect from what the Queen's equivalent would be to the uh, most socially not prestigious type of European Portuguese has inflected infinitives robustly the same, at least for the categories that we're looking at. So now what's the difference? We match them by education, we match them by socioeconomic class. The difference between these heritage speakers and the Brazilian heritage speakers is only the dialect to which they were exposed. 
What do you want to bet? Do they have inflected infinitives or not? They look exactly like native speakers, okay? Um, there's some extra categories here, so don't pay attention to the last three. It's another case of inflected infinitives. These six are the exact same environments. There are no, not only are there no statistical differences, even with the error bars, they look exactly like native speakers. So what's the difference? It's still indirect evidence, but unless we want to say that there's something special about Europeans that South Americans don't have, which we don't want to say, then it seems to be a stronger evidence that there's something different about the inputs that they have. Again, if we didn't do this, we could just say it's incomplete. But it's incomplete to say it's incomplete because they couldn't get it to start with. Okay. Heritage speaker, I already told you all this. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to the second assertion, um, and that is, is there a compounded effect of L1 attrition? So is the changing face of L1 attrition responsible for some of the input differences that get passed along? Okay, so Montreux in 2004 showed that, and this is looking at subject distribution. Okay, so Spanish, this is Spanish as a heritage language in the context of the U.S., Spanish is well known to be a null subject language. Does everybody know what that is? That means that Phenomenal subjects, he, you, she, we, are optionally phonetically realized or pronounced when you speak. And by option, I don't mean that it's in free variation. In fact, you don't say the subject unless you have a pragmatic reason for it. And pragmatic reasons would include switching a topic. Obvious things. If you're going to be talking about Vicky and then all of a sudden move to Yolanda, I have to say she or I will all still think you're speaking about the same person. Also for focal reasons. Okay, If I want to stress something, then this is what it's used for. Otherwise, it's not used. So 80% of pronominal subjects in Spanish are not pronounced. Okay? And what she showed was that heritage speakers had really good knowledge that their language allowed for null subjects. English does not. Okay, but they didn't seem to be sensitive in the same way as monolinguals to the conditions that govern the 20% use of normalcy in uh, inherited speakers. My question is this, and the assumption from that article is that this is incomplete acquisition. They can get the syntax, but they have problems acquiring the pragmatic distribution. My question is, are they really hearing only 20% of the subjects? Or has attrition affected the distribution within the generation previously? And they're acquiring what they're hearing, which is more subject use. Does that make sense? In which case, it's not incomplete at all. It's just different. And it's a byproduct of passed along attritional effects. Here's the empirical study. This is done with a Mexican control. I'll point out to you, we're going to test attriters, and then we're going to test heritage speakers. And these are their parents. These are these people's parents. Okay? We're going to see what they look like. We employed some tests that I used um, in 2009 for second language acquisition. There were four tests. I'm going to talk to you very briefly about two. One I'll focus on a little more. Just believe me when I tell you, because it would take me forever to explain to you what the overt pronoun constraint is and what determiner phrases and blah, blah, blah. What's important here is to note that there are no statistical differences between any of the groups. That is, a native control, the attriters, those people who were 20 or more when they moved to the US and are now competent bilinguals, but were native monolinguals before that, and their children. There's no differences. And this represents the syntactic knowledge. So with Montreal 2004, no problem with the syntax. They're fine with the syntax, which is different than English. OK, here's where I'm going to differ a little bit. Now, this is looking at the pragmatic distribution. Okay, This is looking at when they actually use subjects. And I can explain. If you have questions, I can explain the tests a little more. What I want to point out for you is that only in three, uh, in three environments, they only differ in one, and it's the one that you would expect them to differ in. Felicitous null subject means that when we tested them, and it was appropriate to use null subjects, which is always except for the oddball switching of reference and so on, they're fine. They like those sentences. They, they like and prefer null subjects. When it was felicitous to use an overt subject because I used focus in a context, they also like the fact that I was using overt subjects. They had no problem with that. When we gave them environments where there was an overt pronoun, but there was no contrastive focus or topic shift, so this is now using um, an overt uh, using a null pronoun where there is a pragmatic reason to use otherwise, 
then they're significantly different from the baseline. But I want you to see this. So are their parents. This is significantly different. This is significantly different from both groups. But the point is, is that they clearly are receiving different input. And whatever causes attrition compounds with the attrited input. So they don't look just like their parents, but why would they? There's something that's making their parents' system be different, probably influenced from English and cognitive factors. You could ask me about them just being bilingual. They have to deal with that and a difference in input. And so we see this. We, the prediction actually is that we should see this gradual step. And we do. OK. So the native control performs like both groups. I actually am going to skip this because I explained this to you. This is exactly what I just explained to you. OK, so now we're at the discussion. We're almost finished. In this scenario that we just saw, heritage speakers can be viewed as fully acquiring a system that it's its own emerging dialect, right? And just different from monolingual dialects. This is an assertion. They never had a chance to acquire a monolingual variety. So why should we call their grammars incomplete against the standard they weren't exposed to. That's, to me, this is going to sound a little extreme, but that's like telling me that I'm an incomplete speaker of English because I don't sound like the majority of you. How could I possibly sound British? I didn't grow up here. But I'm a pretty competent, complete speaker of my dialect if you accept that it's a proper dialect to be a speaker of. OK. We do not really know if this is, if, if this is directly input-based. Right? The general volatility of the syntax discourse interface can manifest differently in heritage speakers. And we saw that. So if I move back, we, we see that it's not only the input, but there seems to be good evidence that it, it, it's contributing. Right? Um, mm -hmm. um, both the general effect of bilingualism, you can ask me about that, because bilingualism has, I don't like to call them advantages or disadvantages. They have realities to them. And there are cognitive considerations to consider here. That sounded nice, cognitive considerations to consider. But your brain is having to do a lot more things. And specifically with certain properties of language, this can manifest in surface, pro surface differences. There's no problems, just differences. Okay. Um, and, uh, and this can be passed along, right? We see it in attrition, too. Methodologies that can directly test between incomplete acquisition, attrition, and missing input delimitations are very welcome. It's a wonderful dissertation, and I'm going to sound like, uh, well, whatever. It's my dissertation. So my last US dissertation student who finished last year, what he did was he triangulated the results of several groups of contact bilinguals. First generation of triters, like I did here, heritage speaker adults, and importantly, heritage speaker children with two controls, monolingual children and, and monolingual adults. He controlled the dialect. So this is just Cuban Spanish. Um, he is from Spain. So unlike myself, he was permitted to go to Cuba. He just flew to the Bahamas and then flew to Cuba. He tested children. He tested um, adults in Cuba. He also tested uh, people in Miami. And Cuban Spanish is very special in the context of Spanishes in the United States because they can serve their dialect very well. You could ask me why. There's lots of reasons, political and socio reasons, that, that explain this. But what's very nice is by looking at children, he can see if something has a trited, because he compares the adults to the children to see if they have progression, also for development, too. And what he showed very nicely is that their incomplete acquisition for what he looked at and attrition can't explain anything, because the children, the adult heritage speakers, although different from monolinguals, are better than the children. So they didn't lose anything, and they continued their development. But their development winded up being different in its entirety. Um, they also didn't look too differently than the monolingual children at that level, too. So there's a developmental thing. Maybe we're all wrong. We probably are. Inherited speaker knowledge is not so different, after all, anyway. Just their production is. Now look, everything we do is a performance, and everything you look at as a performance. And if you think it's not, I'll fight with you later. It's a performance. I know that everything that I look at is a performance. Even EEG ERP research is a performance with less uh, extra things that can coincide, but they're a performance, right? When we look at processing, and this is this beautiful dissertation being done in Paul Odysseus's lab in, in Penn State. The student is Viegas. What he showed was, looking at the subjunctive in Spanish, that their production measures were very much different, again, in the way I explained to you before, if you remember, only in the context where it's not obligatory. They were different. We've seen this before. But then they did eye tracking, and their processing is exactly like 
monolingual native speakers. So maybe what we're actually have been recording in all of my research and those of others is merely a surface phenomena because this seems to suggest that that might be a possibility. Okay, implications. So here we are for teachers, right? And then I'll be done. Heritage speaker grammars are not broken and teaching them later on in specific courses designed for them is not meant to fix them. Okay? You're not fixing their grammars. You're giving them another register, and they should be treated as such. When I am in the U.S. and I go to teach English, and we all, just like in the, U in the, U in the U.K., we take English from the, from the time I'm in first grade or grade one. I've taken English. Well, if I were in Appalachia and I were teaching, they speak a very different dialect of English that is very not standard. You wouldn't understand it. I barely understand it when I hear it on TV. Okay? That's not how they're taught. But we're giving them, we don't tell them, okay, because you're broken, we're going to fix you. We give, some people think that probably, but officially nobody would dare say that. What you're giving them is education in the standard variety for the purposes of what standard variety gives you. That's what heritage speakers need, and that's how they should be treated. They are not second language learners. You don't need to teach them how to conjugate verbs. They don't even know what verbs are, like people who take English don't know what verbs are unless they're crazy like us and they like language, right? So they don't know these things. They don't necessarily have metalinguistic knowledge. They might from their education in another language and be able to transfer this. But what they need is to be taught like, not like English as a second language. They need to be taught like English for native speakers, Spanish for native speakers, whatever the language is. Teaching heritage languages, their language is akin to teaching language arts, not a foreign language, as this is the method adopted for second language learners. The methods are not appropriate for, for heritage speakers. However, in the context of the US, that's mostly how they're taught. And then we, un we don't understand why they're frustrated and why all the second language learners are frustrated because they don't want to say anything because I wish I sounded like some of the heritage speakers that were in my second language Spanish class, intimidating everybody else from opening their mouth because they sound really good. Little do they know that they sound good, but very different in interesting ways. This requires a few distinctions to be kept clear that I think people in education need to keep. All heritage speakers are heritage learners in such a context, but not all heritage learners are heritage speakers. Some heritage learners are second language learners. So if you go back to the 12 scenarios I gave you, Valentina is a second language learner. I have no problem with you calling her a heritage learner. Her motivations are different. Her cultural knowledge is different. She has maybe even some passive knowledge and maybe some access to phonological categories that are underlyingly there. But she is a second language learner. She's also a heritage second language learner. But a heritage speaker is different than a heritage learner, at least for me. Okay? Heritage speakers should be kept distinct from L2 learners as only heritage speakers are natives of the language, and, the group, and these groups have different needs. Thank you for listening.